This morning we come to a very momentous occasion in our study of Paul's letter to the Philippians. It has been our immense privilege over the past year and nine months to dig deeply into the treasure chest of this marvelous epistle and to mine out the precious gems of God's truth, which he's revealed for us through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And through the illumination of the Holy Spirit and by the grace of God, we have feasted on this word, which is God-breathed and which is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, so that by it we might grow in respect to salvation and that we might be equipped for every good work. And we have beheld the great burden of the Apostle Paul that the people of God ought to always conduct themselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, that we would live gospel-driven lives. That is to say that we would consciously consider ourselves to be beneficiaries of the grace of God purchased for us by the work of Christ in the gospel and would, moment by moment, be bringing the reality of our position in Christ to bear on absolutely everything in our lives. And it is and has been my prayer that all of us have been taught, reproved, corrected, trained in righteousness, and more greatly equipped by God himself through his word to carry out the work of the ministry that has been entrusted to us in this small corner of the kingdom of God. But this morning, as I said, we come to a momentous occasion in our study of this great letter, and that is because this morning we come to Paul's final words to his dear friends at Philippi in the letter to the Philippians. And we understand that in a letter between friends like this, the the closing remarks have a heightened significance, both in the mind of the author and in the affections of the recipients. We're conscious of that in our own correspondence, aren't we? Whether we've written a long letter or just a brief note, we take care as we come to the end of our writing to bring our various streams of thought to a unified conclusion, to sum up in a few sentences that the, the point that we're really trying to get across. And we do that because we know that what we write last is what our friends will read last, and that those thoughts and sentiments will be what's left ringing in their minds. And I think we see a timely il- illustration of that even in the greeting cards that many of us have either written out or received this week for Father's Day, or will receive later today. This week, as I was looking for the right Father's Day cards for my dad and for my grandfather, uh, I had the opportunity to read quite a few of them in the uh, greeting card aisle of the supermarket. And as you know, and you know how this is, some of them are funny and zany and uh, others are sweet and heartfelt. Some of them have a very plain design and others pop open in 3D and play a song when you open the card. Some of them are short and give you a lot of space to write a personal note and some of them are, have, have a, a very warm and thoughtful message already written on the inside of them. But no matter what the variations are, all of them have one thing in common. They all end by saying, Happy Father's Day. And that's the point, right? Of all the things that you could say, of all the memories that you could recall and and fondly summarize, what summarizes all of those sentiments and succinctly captures the purpose of the greeting 
is your desire for your dad to know that he's loved and to have a happy Father's Day. See, what's written last is of extreme, immense importance and significance, even in something as what we might think of as regular and mundane as a Father's Day card. And that was no less true in Paul's case. In fact, these last words here may have been even more significant to him in the Philippians than they might normally have been. You say, why is that? Well, remember the context in which Paul's writing. He is under house arrest, waiting to stand trial before Nero in Rome. And though he's expressed in chapter 1, verse 25, that he expects to be released and to continue on in ministry to the Philippians, he has no definitive word from the Lord about this. He's not sure. There's a very real possibility that Nero, him, himself a widely unstable madman, could order Paul's execution. After all, Paul's apostolic ministry of preaching the gospel of the Lord Jesus is an act of treason and sedition against the Lord Caesar. And so Paul speaks in chapter 1, verse 20, of whether he lives or whether he dies. And in chapter 1, verse 27, of whether he comes to see the Philippians or whether he remains absent. And in chapter 2, verse 23, about how seeing how things go with him. And so these final words in Philippians chapter 4 may not only be the, the closing remarks of a certain letter to a beloved church, for all Paul and Timothy and Epaphroditus and the Philippians knew, these words may have been the very last things that Paul ever said to his dear friends at Philippi. And so you can be sure that he is going to encapsulate what he feels is most important in these farewell remarks. James Montgomery Boyce put it this way, he wrote, Few of Paul's books end abruptly, and none of them ends without thought. In this book, as in others, Paul's thoughts ran back over the work he had written, and his final remarks were added to impress his most important themes upon his readers. And you can imagine how the Philippians would have paid attention to the conclusion of this letter as it was first read in the church as the congregation was gathered for Sunday worship. Having already heard of the uncertainty of the outcome of Paul's trial, they would have been especially attuned to hear these final words from their beloved apostle. And in fact, since Paul was thought not to be able to see very well, the whole of this letter would have very likely been written by an amanuensis, by a, a secretary that Paul would have dictated to at what he wanted written. But usually when Paul got to the greeting portion of his letters he'd write these closing remarks himself with his own hand. There are numerous places in the New Testament, 1 Corinthians 16, 21, Galatians 6, 11, Colossians 4, 18, others, where Paul actually says, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. And you could imagine the manuscript, the original autograph of that scripture, of that letter, in a different kind of script than the rest of it. And so I can just imagine as one of the elders of the church of Philippi is coming to the end of reading the letter that the congregation would begin to, to stand up and to crane their neck and to crowd around this person reading the letter, trying to see the greeting that Paul would have penned with his own hand. But though Paul seemed to have a, a custom in the way that he ended his letters, they all seem to have the, the same basic components, we need to be careful to recognize that this is no mere mechanical formula for Paul. If our last three sermons on verses 10 to 20 have taught us anything, 
It's that everything that Paul says and does is dominated by the gospel of Christ, even down to the way he writes a thank you note. And that's true for his farewell greetings as well. Martin Lloyd-Jones puts it helpfully. He says, it's very important for us to realize that this is no mere formal ending to a letter. It was not just a casual, expressive phrase used by the apostle. Paul never wrote anything in a casual manner, and nothing must be taken lightly in an epistle by this great apostle. His apparent asides, that is, the things which seem to be sort of on the side, his apparent asides are often packed with doctrine. His postscripts are full of truth and instruction. So let's read our text this morning, Philippians chapter 4, Verses 20 to 23, Paul writes, Now to our God and Father be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brethren who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. And so, in our study together this morning, we're going to unpack the doctrine that is packed into this postscript. We're going to mine out some of the truth and instruction that Martin Lloyd-Jones speaks about. And we'll do that by making some observations about the three components of Paul's closing remarks. Paul's final remarks of the Philippians basically unfold across three units of thought. There's a doxology, there are greetings, and there's a benediction. And these three components center on three themes that will prove instructive for us as we examine them. And those three themes are glory in verse 20, greetings in verses 21 and 22, and grace in verse 23. Glory, greetings, and grace. So first we have glory. Look again with me at verse 20. Paul writes, Now to our God and Father... Be glory forever and ever. Amen. Paul comes to the close of this marvelous letter. And as he does, he lets his mind run over the great truths of the gospel and of Christ that the Holy Spirit has revealed to God's people through Paul's own pen. And his response is to erupt in worship. He's spoken to them about the glorious mystery of the incarnation of Christ. That the Lord Jesus was God the Son from all eternity. And though he himself was God and equal to the Father in his being and his essence, he nevertheless sacrificed his rights to be worshipped as God by all the saints and angels of heaven and took on a human nature. God himself was born as a man and submitted himself to all the weaknesses of a life as a human being in a fallen world, yet was without sin. And though he had suffered the most shameful and ignominious death that anyone could suffer in that day, it was precisely because of this obedient death and righteous life that God raised him from the dead and exalted him above everything and every one in the universe. Paul has also spoken to them about the nature of the true gospel, that the true child of God is the one who has so apprehended the loveliness and worthiness of Christ that when he surveys everything else that the world can offer him, he counts it all as refuse in comparison to the surpassing value of knowing Christ 
The true Christian is the one who can cry from the depths of his soul that for me to live is Christ and to die is gain because it brings me even more of Christ. He is the one who has considered everything in his life that might commend him to God, all of his good works that at one time or another he might have hoped in for his acceptance into heaven. He counts all of those things as worthless to get himself saved. He's the one who knows that if he's going to be accepted into the presence of the thrice holy God of heaven, that he needs a righteousness, not a righteousness of his own that is derived from the law, but an alien righteousness, the alien righteousness of Christ that is counted to be his through faith alone. The true child of God is the one who glories in Christ Jesus and puts no confidence in the flesh. Paul has also taught them that the grace that brought them to salvation doesn't leave them there, but works mightily in them for their sanctification as well. The grace that saves is the grace that sanctifies because God himself is working in them, conforming their thoughts and affections to his own holiness so that they will both will and work for his good pleasure. And Paul has taught them that at the finish line of the race of holiness is the prize of Christ himself, that those who by the grace of God have been enrolled on the register of the, as citizens of heaven that they eagerly await the return of Christ our Savior, who will not only take us to heaven, but who will transform our sin-cursed bodies into conformity with the likeness of the body of His glory. Glorification is the glorious prospect of all those who are in Christ. And even beyond that, Paul has spoken about the sovereignty of God that advances the gospel even by means of suffering and affliction. He says, I want you to know that my circumstances, my imprisonment, have turned out to really advance the gospel. The sovereignty of God that strengthens servants of Christ like Timothy and Epaphroditus to, to lay down their lives in the service of God's people and in the service of the gospel. And the sovereignty that assures the Philippians, even amidst their generous and sacrificial giving, that God will supply all their needs according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. And in response to all of that magnificent truth, Paul explodes into a doxology of praise and worship. Now, in view of everything that has come before, now to our God and Father, be glory forever and ever. Amen. See, friends, the only proper response to the glories of doctrinal and theological truth is the most exalted and exuberant kind of worship. The entire point of perceiving the truth of the Word of God in your mind is the savoring of that truth such that it shapes and molds your heart, your affections. And that from those truth-shaped affections, you would yield delightful, heartfelt worship back to God. And that is God's own self-declared purpose in saving people and conforming them to the image of Christ. In this very letter, we read it just now, Philippians 3 verse 3, Paul defines the true Christian as the one who worships by the Spirit of God and who glories in Christ Jesus. And in 
John chapter 4, verse 23, Jesus tells the woman at the well that the true worshipers of God will worship him in spirit and truth. And then he says, for such people, the Father seeks to be his worshipers. See, the Father seeks worshipers. And in that great hymn of Ephesians chapter 1, Josh read a portion of it for us just now. In verses 6, verses 12, and verse 14, Paul repeats the ultimate purpose for our salvation three times. It's in that text that we learn that we have been chosen by the Father, redeemed by the Son, and sealed by the Spirit for the praise of the glory of God's grace. He has done those those things. He has acted salvifically in history for the praise of His glory. And so, Pastor John summarizes it nicely. He says, the object of redemption was to make people worshipers. Another commentator wrote, true theology is doxology. And doxology is always the proper response to God. In other words, if your understanding of the truth of God's word and the theology derived from an accurate understanding of the Bible, if that does not issue in passionate praise and worship to God, you have aborted the process of biblical instruction. You've cut it short. You've truncated it. I don't care how much theology you know. I don't care how many of the Puritans you read. If the knowledge of the content of Scripture and of sound doctrine doesn't propel you into worshipful communion with the triune God, you don't know like you ought to know. You have not learned like you ought to have learned. In one of my favorite paragraphs outside the Bible, Jonathan Edwards captured this reality wonderfully. He wrote this, God is glorified not only by his glories being seen, but by its being rejoiced in. When those that see it delight in it, God is more glorified than if they only see it. His glory is then received by the whole soul, both by the understanding and by the heart. God made the world that he might communicate and the creature receive his glory, and that it might be received both by the mind and the heart. He that testifies of his idea of God's glory does not glorify God so much as the one who testifies also of his approbation of it and his delight in it. So God is glorified not only by his glories being seen, but by its being rejoiced in. And we understand this, don't we? I'm going to ask the the gentleman to imagine something with me. And ladies, you can listen too. Guys, if you and your wife were getting ready to go out for a special occasion, and she's been spending the last three hours getting ready, you know, she's bought a new dress, she's gotten a new hairdo, she's putting on the fingernail polish and the toenail polish and the makeup so she can look just right for this special occasion, and, and you're downstairs waiting for her, and finally she comes down the stairs, and as much as you are waiting for her, she is anticipating your reaction to the new dress and to the new hairstyle and so on. And so she comes downstairs, and she does a little twirl, puts her hands on her hips and says with a smile, so what do you think? And you say, huh, I really enjoy the symmetry in your new hairstyle. 
yeah, I can really appreciate the way the hue of your eyeshadow matches the, the color of your dress. I see what you were going for there. You, you definitely put a lot of thought into this. What's going to happen? You're probably going to get a black eye is what's going to happen. But if as she comes downstairs and does her little twirl, if your reaction is, wow, honey, you are absolutely gorgeous. I almost, I'm speechless. I can't believe that I get to be married to someone like you. Well, then things are going to work a little better for you. (laughs) Why? Because your wife is honored, not only by your perceiving the facts of her beauty, but by being blown away by it, by enjoying it. And by expressing that enjoyment of it in words of compliments and praise. And without that joyful expression, her beauty is dishonored. And what Edwards is teaching in that paragraph and what the Apostle Paul is modeling for us in verse 20 is that the beauty and glory of God revealed in his truth is such that it cannot be truly known without also being enjoyed. To study God and his word in a dispassionate manner and to remain entirely unmoved by that stunning beauty that we behold in the face of Christ would be to grossly dishonor that beauty. No, God is glorified not only by his glories being seen, but by its being rejoiced in. And as Paul reflects on all the glory that he's seen, even as the Spirit has worked through him in the writing of this letter, He beholds that beauty and he cries out, oh, may God be glorified. Oh, may he be magnified and exalted and praised by his creatures. He is so worthy for who he is and for what he's done in history. May it be that he receive praise and worship forever and ever, literally unto the ages of the ages, for not even an eternity of worship will be sufficient to adequately extol the worth of the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is the cry of the true Christian's heart. For the one for whom to live is Christ and to die is gain. For the one who counts all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of Christ. Ascribing glory to God's name is the delightful reflex of the heart that has truly perceived divine truth. David bursts out in Psalm 29, verses 1 and 2, Ascribe to the Lord, O sons of the mighty, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due His name. Worship the Lord in holy array. And in Psalm 147, verse 1, he says, Praise the Lord, for it is good to sing praises to our God. For it is pleasant, and praise is becoming. Oh, grace life, it is, is it pleasant and becoming? Is this overflow of praise and worship the delightful reflex of your heart? Commenting on this verse, William Hendrickson wrote, For Paul, doctrine is never a dry matter. Whenever it occupies his mind, it also fills his heart with praise. And oh, may the same be said of us. May the same be said of grace life. 
May God grant that whenever doctrine occupies our mind, it also fills our heart with praise. Well, Paul then moves from the theme of glory in verse 20 to the theme of greetings in verses 21 and 22. This is the second component of his closing remarks to the Philippians. First, glory, and now secondly, greetings. Look with me at verses 21 and 22. Paul says, Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brethren who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. And whereas the doxology of verse 20 is an overflow of praise and worship to God, the greetings recorded in verses 21 and 22 represent an overflow of the true fondness and affection that exists between those who have real living fellowship in Christ. Though we can tend to read these kinds of verses quickly or even skip over them, when we slow down and we really take them in, we see that this was not just Paul being polite or mindlessly repeating some customary words at the end of a letter. These greetings are pulsing with the lifeblood of Christian warmth and intimacy. And we see that preeminently in the threefold repetition of the word greet. First, he charges the overseers and deacons who would likely be the ones to receive this letter from Epaphroditus. He charges them to greet every individual saint in the church of Philippi. Send my greetings to them. Then he speaks on behalf of his co-workers in ministry, whom he here calls the brethren, and notes that they greet the Philippians as well. And then finally, in verse 22, he widens the scope to all the Christians in Rome and notes that they send their greetings too. So we have this threefold repetition. You greet every saint on my behalf. The brethren here greet you. And in fact, all the saints greet you. Now, this word for to greet is aspatsimai in the Greek, and it's the common word used for sending greetings. But the literal basic concept that the word communicates is the notion of embrace. And so the concept of greeting itself is fraught with overtones of a loving, warm embrace. It's as if Paul is, is reaching out through his words as best he can into the Philippian congregation. And it's greeting, and is greeting each one of them with a warm embrace appropriate for those who belong to the family of God. One preacher described it as greeting with fondness and affection. I think that captures it well. And again, Paul sends these warm greetings to each individual member of the Philippian congregation. Certain translations like the NIV and the Net Bible obscure this by translating the phrase, greet all the saints. But the, the Greek is very precise. Paul doesn't just greet all the saints collectively. He says, greet every saint individually. He wants to communicate to each one of them that he remembers each one of them, that he regards each one of them as worthy of his own care and affection and thought and prayer. And, and this just makes so much sense from Paul to the Philippians. Numerous times in our studies throughout this epistle, we've commented on how uniquely personal the letter is, that, that Paul speaks in the first person singular over 120 times in this letter, more than any other letter. He calls the Philippians his brethren, his beloved, his joy and crown of rejoicing on the day of Christ Jesus. 
He mentions how they were the only church to support him financially at a difficult time in his ministry, and that that kind of unique bond that is forged in partnership in gospel ministry, issues in the tender and affectionate language that we see in chapter 1, verse 7, where he says, it is only right for me to feel this way about you all because I have you in my heart. And then again in verse 8, for God is my witness how I long for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And so this, this threefold repetition of greetings serves to conjure up all that Paul has said so far regarding the friendship that he shared with the Philippians. And by bringing all of that to their minds as he closes, Paul is reinforcing his teaching on that intimate fellowship that all Christians share in Christ. And then when you consider that one of Paul's major concerns in this letter is that the Philippians would walk together in gospel-driven unity, right? Make my joy complete by being of the same mind, chapter 2, verse 2. You see how it's a, it's a stroke of pastoral genius for him to, to greet the congregation in this individual and particularistic way. In fact, in many of his other letters, he, his closing greetings contain names of particular people that he singles out among the rest of the congregation for recognition. But in order to not give anyone in Philippi the reason to boast and say, hey, I was mentioned and you weren't mentioned, he, he doesn't say anybody's names lets them know that each one of them occupies a special place in his heart. And, then, and by calling each one of them saints, he puts them all on a level playing field, reminding them that, that each one has been called out and set apart and consecrated for the service of God himself. All Christians are saints. The saints are not some super spiritual class of Christians that get voted on, in, voted into sainthood because of their extra special works. No, all of you, he says, are saints in Christ Jesus. All of you have been called out and set apart for ministry by God. And then saints in Christ Jesus, he reminds them that they're all united to Christ. Then, of course, if they're all united to Christ, they're all united to one another. And the proper understanding of that objective unity should immediately end all rivalry, all disunity that may have been taking place subjectively in their relationships with one another. The overwhelming emphasis in these verses is that there existed in the apostolic church an atmosphere of intimacy and love in which greetings from all the saints in one part of the world would be interchanged with greetings from all the saints in another part of the world. Whether in Philippi or Rome, there was a real sense that believers belonged to one another. There was a real sense that the bond that they had in Christ was such that they desired to communicate their fondness and affection for one another when they had the opportunity. And I tell you that that, friends, has been one of the most consistent prayers of my own heart throughout these past two years that the people of Grace Life would experience and would grow in this depth of fellowship with one another. Perhaps more than anything else, it's been my ambition, my prayerful ambition that the grace of God working through the Word of God and especially working through the preaching of this book of Philippians would lead you all into greater and more intimate fellowship, more intimate enjoyment of Christ in one another. You seeing the Lord Jesus in your interactions with one another that this would be a fellowship group that is known not only for its sound teaching, but also for the saints' love for one another. 
that you would invest yourselves in each other's lives, that you would feel a, a familial ownership of one another's practical needs and, and a real responsibility for each other's growth in grace, and that there would be a gospel-driven intimacy and affection that knits hearts together. Martin Lloyd-Jones says, It does seem to me that this is a thorough test of our whole position as Christian people. How do we know if we're in Christ? How do we know if we're true Christians? This is one of the ways. Do we feel this special interest in other Christian people? Do you, Grace Life? Do you feel that special interest in the people sitting next to you? For those who we call our brothers and sisters in Christ, do we care for one another's physical and spiritual needs as if we were truly family? I think there are many of you who do. And it is a joy for me to watch that kind of true fellowship take root and blossom into loving and sacrificial service. But I also know that there are many of you who don't. And it's heartbreaking for me to see to see you sacrifice these glorious opportunities for the blessed gift of fellowship on the altar of personal convenience. Well, that's going to put me behind. That's going to mess up my routine. And my prayer is that you would, as we close our exposition of Philippians, that you would let the example that we see in Philippians and the commands that we see in Philippians, both by example and by precept, let that take root in your heart so that you might excel still more in your love for one another. There's another way that Paul emphasizes the unity among the brethren and true fellowship in these greetings, and I want to touch on that just briefly. In verse 22, as Paul is conveying the greetings from all the saints in Rome, he singles out a particular group. Look at verse 22. He says, All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. Now, in referring to the members of Caesar's household, Paul is not necessarily referring to Nero's family. But the term that he's using there refers to all of those engaged in imperial service. This would have included both slaves and freemen, and it definitely included the praetorian guard that Paul mentions back in chapter 1, verse 13. You remember that, where Paul is reassuring that the, the Philippians that his imprisonment in Christ didn't mean an end to his ministry because six Roman soldiers per day had to be chained to his wrist for four hours at a time and they were all being evangelized. And here in chapter 4, verse 22, he goes out of his way to highlight that there were saints in Caesar's household who were sending their greetings to them. And I think the Philippians would have loved that. Remember, Philippians, the Philippi rather was a Roman colony. Right? And, and the Philippians were proud of their Roman citizenship. They would have absolutely loved to hear that the gospel of the Lord Jesus had penetrated the very center and citadel of the Roman Empire, Caesar's own household. And I love the way Calvin puts this. He says, This is a thing well deserving to be noticed, for it is no common evidence of divine mercy that the gospel had made its way into that sink of all crimes and iniquities. The Philippians would have rejoiced at the news of the triumph of the gospel, even over imperial power. Sure, Nero demanded to be worshipped as a god, 
on the pain of torture and death. But when Nero brought the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ too close to home in the person of the prisoner of the Apostle Paul, that mighty gospel turned members of Nero's own household into more devoted followers of Jesus than they ever were of Nero. The Philippians surely would have been strengthened by that fact if the members of Caesar's own household could live a, a consistently Christian life, notwithstanding the enormous amount of pressures that exist in the very epicenter of paganism. And the idea is that if these people could do it in the, the sink of all crimes and iniquities, if these people could live faithful lives devoted to Christ, well then, the Philippians can live faithful lives devoted to Christ, even though they are facing the pressures of the pagan empire all around them. See, they're in, in a Roman colony. They're in Caesar's colony. But these Christians were in Caesar's household. And that should be an enormous encouragement to them and to us. And just to add a brief word of application to that, I want to quote the great 19th century Scottish expositor Alexander McLaren. McLaren writes, and what lessons the saints in Caesar's household may teach us. Think of the abyss of lust and murder there, of the emperor by turns a buffoon, a sensualist, and a murderer. A strange place to find saints in that sty of filth. Let no man say that it is impossible for a pure life to be lived in any circumstances or to bribe his conscience by insisting on the difficulties of his environment. It may be our duty to stand at our post, however foul may be our surroundings and however uncongenial our company. And if we are sure that he has set us there, we may be sure that he is with us there and that we can live the life and witness to his name. It's hard for me to be a consistent Christian at my job, my college, with my friends. It's not harder than being a Christian in the center of paganism in Nero's own household. And so what a wealth of instruction comes to us by way of what many would suppose are the most mundane of farewell greetings. Truly all Scripture is God-breathed and profitable for our training in righteousness, is it not? Well, we've mined out our treasures from Paul's mention of glory in verse 20. And we've harvested our pearls from his greetings to the Philippians in verses 21 and 22. And finally, we come to the third theme of Paul's closing remarks in his letter to the Philippians. And that theme is grace. Look at verse 23. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Would the Apostle Paul have ended this magnificent letter any other way? James Montgomery Boyce wrote, there is nothing more significant that Paul could have said to end his epistle. And McLaren again comments, such a wish as this benediction is the truest expression of human friendship. It is the highest desire any of us can form for ourselves or for those dearest to us. And Lloyd-Jones said that this was the most comprehensive prayer that any person can offer on behalf of another. Nothing greater can be desired or requested for any of us than that the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ should be present with us and controlling our spirits. And the reason that all that is so is because grace is the sum and substance, the beginning, middle, and end of the Christian life. It is the foundation of, of all Christian experience, from start to finish, 
every aspect of our salvation, our justification, our sanctification, and our glorification is dependent upon God's unmerited favor granted to us in Jesus Christ. We earn nothing. There is absolutely nothing good in our lives that we can take credit for. Nothing. We are so destitute of goodness and moral sufficiency that in every way that we relate to God, we can accomplish nothing of ourselves. Everything must be provided as an undeserved gift. And that was certainly true of our salvation. I want you to turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. The letter of 2 Corinthians has some helpful teaching for us regarding God's grace. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9, Paul ascribes the work of our salvation to the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. He says in 2 Corinthians 8, 9, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. And so our, our finding the riches of the gospel, the union with Christ, the forgiveness of sins, the imputation of righteousness, all of salvation's riches come, Paul says, as a gift of the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we know that the same is true with our glorification. Paul expresses this in Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, that, that the God who began the good work of salvation in you by grace will also, by that same free and sovereign grace, bring that work of grace to completion in the day of Christ Jesus. 1 Thessalonians 5.24 puts that plainly. There Paul says, Faithful is he who called you, and he also will bring it to pass. God's grace is the beginning. God's grace is the end. We also need to recognize that God's grace is the cause of everything on the in-between. And sometimes we have a problem assimilating that reality. We can be tempted to think that, well, grace is what gets us started in the Christian life, and then, well, the rest is up to us. But I love what Pastor John says about this in his sermon on this text. He says, you want to hear something? You didn't deserve to be saved, and you don't deserve to be kept saved. He says, you are no more worthy of your salvation now than you were then. And so you are sustained by grace just as you were saved by grace. It is grace by which our whole life exists. That's why Paul says in Romans 5, 2, this grace in which we stand, we live in it. And he goes on, our lives are governed by grace, guided by grace, kept by grace, strengthened by grace, sanctified by grace, and enabled by grace. We are constantly dependent on the forgiveness, comfort, peace, joy, boldness, and instruction that come through God's grace. Every good fruit that we bear in the Christian life is sown in the soil of our hearts by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why we call the virtues of the Christian life graces. Look with me again, just 2 Corinthians 8, just two verses ahead in verse 7. Paul's encouraging the Corinthians to be stirred up to their giving to the saints, and he says, But just as you abound in everything, in faith and utterance and knowledge and in all earnestness and in the love we inspired in you, see that you abound, and the NAS has the words, in this gracious work, but the Greek simply says, see that you abound in this grace also. 
The good fruit of sacrificial giving is a grace. It comes by the grace of Christ. And the same is true with all the fruit of the Spirit. And so it's, it's only natural for, for Paul, natural now that he's been given a new nature. It's only natural for him whose greatest desire for the Philippians is that they would walk and conduct themselves in a manner that is worthy of the gospel. It's only natural for him to pray on their behalf that the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ would be with their spirit. Because the only way that they will conduct themselves as citizens in a manner worthy of the gospel is if Christ lovingly supplies them with the grace that is necessary to live such a life. This is especially so given the many trials that the the people of God will face. We've learned in chapter 1, verse 29, that just as faith is granted to every believer, so also it is granted to every believer to suffer for Christ's sake. Chapter 1, verse 29. And when Paul himself was stricken with the thorn in his flesh, and earnestly implored the Lord three times that it be taken from him. What was the reply that the Lord gave him? 2 Corinthians 12, verse 9. And he has said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. So you see, it is by the grace of Christ that we experience the supernatural working of his resurrection power to endure all manner of suffering that we experience on the path of obedience in a way that is worthy of the gospel of Christ. And so in this letter, and in every other one of his letters, every other one, the Apostle Paul begins by saying, grace to you. And he ends by saying, grace be with you. Friends, the grace of Christ is sufficient for you. Grace is sufficient to sustain and energize you for the performance of every Christian duty and responsibility that God calls you to in the Christian life. And so Martin Lloyd-Jones again asks, can we end our consideration of this mighty epistle on a grander note than this? Whatever may happen in life or in death, whatever may take place in any conceivable situation or circumstances, whatever may be your lot, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ will be sufficient. And so we have come to an end of this marvelous letter, this magnum opus of God's grace as all God's word is. And it's my desire to close the exposition of this great letter in the same way that Paul closed the letter itself. Just as Paul desired to set before the Philippians the magnificent themes of glory, greetings, and grace in order to sum up all that he's been saying, so do I desire to set those themes before you for your lasting consideration. I would entreat you in response to all of this magnificent truth that we have beheld together in the text of God's word to join with me in doxology, to let your hearts be stirred to to ascribe all glory and praise to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, knowing that the glad worship of a heart satisfied by the glory and grace of Christ is God's own stated purpose for all of his dealings with his people. Now to our God and Father, be glory forever and ever. And I would greet you 
And I would remind you of the warm and affectionate fellowship that we share together in Christ. And even even of the heightened sweetness of fellowship that we share in a well-ordered and like-minded church such as ours. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. Those who are true saints indeed greet you. Grace Life, lay hold of this intimate and loving fellowship with one another. That is your precious inheritance as a member of Christ's body. And I would bless you, praying that from start to finish in the Christian life, you would be consciously aware of the saving, sanctifying, energizing, and keeping power of God's grace in Christ at work in your soul. My charge to you is the same as Paul's to the Philippians. Whatever else it is that you do, Whatever else, only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. And for that, you will depend on the infinite sufficiency of God's grace. And so I pray the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Father, that is our prayer, that your grace would go with us as we leave this marvelous epistle that you've inspired breathed out yourself and that that its teaching would arrive home in our hearts and that it would take root in our hearts, that we would be a people stunned by your glory and would not rob or cheapen that glory of its due praise, but that would be stirred up in heart as well as mind to give you praise and honor and glory and worship for who you are. And that we would know the fellowship of Saints who find it absolutely natural to greet one another with the warmest and most fond affection. May we walk in the the reality of that grace of, of loving and warm fellowship with one another. May we not play church and play fellowship group. May we dig into one another's lives as we have been so wonderfully taught in this book, by this book of Philippians. And we pray that that your grace would always be with us, that in all that we do, that, that, that we would be consciously drawing upon the strength of God's grace that is available to us in Christ. Thank you for that wonderful gift, the gift of grace, the gift of gifts, because we know that we can do nothing of ourselves. Father, change your people through your word. Conform us to the image of Christ for having studied this great letter. May we be always honoring to you. May you get what you are worthy of in your people, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. For more information about the ministry of the Grace Life Pulpit, visit at www.thegracelifepulpit.com. Copyright by the Grace Life Pulpit, all rights reserved.